peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Last week, Pastor Arp told us a little bit about the Christian virtues that Paul sees in the people of Colossae. That he desires to see from there more and more because they are the Christian virtues that Jesus shows. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Freely forgiving. And in the end of our text for last week, Paul says, In everything that you do in word or deed, do it in the name of Jesus. That's the general command. That's generally what we do, and and generally that works differently in every single one of our lives. But today, Paul gets more specific about what does it actually mean to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus? What does it mean in our relationships, in the roles that we play in our world? What does it mean in the role of husband and wife? What does it mean in the role of child and parents or the role of slave and master? What do those roles mean? Well, Paul unpacks that a little bit more for us. He, he shows us how doing everything in word and deed in the name of the Lord Jesus means we actually get to risk being a little bit radically countercultural in our relationships because we know we have the surety of an inheritance in heaven. Because Christ loved us with his whole life to give us that inheritance. But first, what does it look like in the relationship between man and woman? Husband and wife. This is the most foundational human relationship that the world has ever known. Because this is the relationship that God establishes in the garden. As he walks Eve down the aisle and hands her off to Adam. And there in the Garden of Eden, we had the perfect marriage. We had Adam being the perfect leader, Eve being the perfect wife, Eve being a wife who didn't submit in a kind of robotic sense, but but who submitted knowing her equal value with Adam, submitted knowing that she has her own creativity and her opinions to share. But following Adam a Christian leader who had no bitterness or harshness to even think of, but who loved self-sacrificially, who always put Eve's values first, who treated her like the queen of creation that God created her to be. And Adam loved in this self-sacrificial love that didn't even feel like a sacrifice anymore. That was the perfect marriage and how quickly it fell to pieces and how we have seen it degenerate into what we know today. We see even the glimpse of it in the fall. In the fall of Adam and Eve into sin, as Eve takes the fruit from the tree, and what is Adam doing? What is this leader, this loving, self-sacrificial leader doing? He is right there with her. What are you doing, Adam? You can almost picture him like the sitcoms we know so well, just sitting at the kitchen table looking at the newspaper, and serpent comes in with a basket of forbidden fruit and says, Eve, try one of these. And Eve says, "Uh, didn't God say something like, uh, if you touch that fruit or eat of it, you'll surely die? Adam, 
Was God saying something like that? Oh, the sports page. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think God, God said something like that. But you won't surely die. God wouldn't not want you to have this fruit. I mean, come on, you'll have the knowledge of good and evil. You would be like God. And Eve looks and sees that it looks pretty good and it sounds pretty good. Hey, Adam, what do you think? Would God rather have us obey his command or, or try to be more like God? Oh, wow, the leopard's up 2-1 on the lions this year. Could be an upset. Uh, yeah, yeah, God would probably want us to be like him. I, that sounds good. And Eve takes the fruit and doesn't die. She eats the fruit and doesn't die. Gives it to Adam. He doesn't die, so he eats the fruit. And all of a sudden... Harshness and bitterness creeps in. Adam no longer treats Eve like the queen of creation that she is. But as soon as as God comes looking for Adam to be held accountable for the sin of humankind, Adam hides behind his wife, throws her under the bus with harshness and bitterness. It was that woman that you gave to me. And all of a sudden, this beautiful gift turns into a burden from Adam's perspective. And there at the fall, we see it begin. And at the fall, as God speaks the curse, the the promise of what life is going to be in this sinful world, he speaks to Eve. And how how her curiosity will turn into a frustration. As she will live her life under, under domineering, tyrannical men who, who don't lead as the leaders he created them to be, who don't lead lovingly, but now lead for their own self-interest. And she will be, for the rest of her life, confused at the Christian command to submit, desiring to have her husband, desiring to usurp his authority. And we see this relationship that plays out in the fall infect every aspect of our lives. And every sitcom you watch from Bewitched to King of Queens, there it is. Bitterness. The atrocious apathy of men that, that atrophies in, into a bitterness. A bitterness that, that maybe would be harbored in the heart at first. At, at just that little thing that she does that kind of irritates you and, and maybe it grows into a word spoken under your breath. Maybe it it grows into a joke that you share with your friend. Maybe it it snowballs into a joke that you share with your wife. Maybe it grows into sarcasm until eventually an avalanche comes down as you're hurling harsh words across the house because you can't even stand to be in the same room anymore. is the reality of a broken world with broken relationships. And Christ comes into this conundrum of Christian relationships and shows a better way. Christ comes as a new Adam, but an Adam who would come without any apathy. Christ would come to love self-sacrificially, Christ would come to win back his bride, his precious people. 
And even though those precious people were constantly usurping his authority, constantly trying to push his authority out of their lives, Christ would come and he would love them first. He loved them even to the point of a cross. Giving up his life for the sake of a wedding ceremony that he would have at his return. Christ loved with his entire life to make you his bride. Christ loved with his entire life to give you a share of the inheritance. Christ loved with his entire life to make you, the church, his bride. And at that wedding ceremony, you become a member of the family who inherits with Christ. Christ loved with everything that he had. So that we don't have to worry as much about our relationships, but we can risk being radically different. We can risk putting away self-serving love. And husbands, you can risk being sacrificial in everything because you know that the inheritance is coming. You can risk putting the desires and wishes of your wife first. Wives, you, you can risk being submissive, not, not in a robotic fashion, but in a fashion where you share your creativity, you share your opinions, but submit to the authority of a husband, just as, just as, as the church, we submit to the authority of Christ, a loving Lord. And Christ is Lord over all. And there is an exception to the rule. Christ is Lord over husbands. So, so when Christian conscience is an issue, then wives must submit to Christ rather than to the husband. But, but don't make the exception to be the rule. This relationship is a perfect image of the relationship of Christ and his church. Excuse me, Christ and his church is a perfect image of this relationship between husband and wife. And sometimes when it plays itself out, it's a beautiful thing. I, I have a really good friend who I think does a really good job of that, and he's not perfect, but never in my life have I ever heard him share a bitter word towards his wife. Never in my life have I ever heard him share a condescending comment. And sure, they have their differences, and he'll talk about their differences, but never in a condescending way. And sure, it's easy when life is good. Easy when, when they both are working their dream jobs, but when stress comes into the equation, it's a little bit more difficult. And so this, this friend and his wife were trying to have a child and praise God he gave them a pregnancy. A and at the first ultrasound, they found out not one child, but two children. They were thinking, are we financially ready for this? They took a step back. They looked at their finances, realized this is going to be tight. Even with both of us working, it's going to be tight. Paying for two daycares at the same time. And the husband stopped said, well, what do you want to do? W would you rather continue working, continue to make this narrow profit margin? Or we could not think about finances at all. Would you rather continue to work 
Or would you rather stay home? She said, well, I'd rather raise my own children. He made the heroic kind of self-sacrificial decision to say, well, we'll figure it out from there. He picked up another job. He stopped getting to watch as much college football on Saturdays, but he made the sacrifice to serve his wife. And she submitted to that decision, and it was a beautiful moment. And sometimes it's the other way around. Sometimes it's to stay and work. That doesn't mean that it has to look a certain way, but it does have to look like Christ and his church. Christ who loves with everything he has. And a church who wants to follow after that kind of a leader. When Paul says do everything in word and deed in the name of Christ, he means to risk a radical relationship. And to look after the example and the glory of our Lord who loves us with everything he has to give us an inheritance. That's man and woman, husband and wife. And I spent a lot of time on that one because it's the most foundational human relationship. But we'll talk a little bit about the other two as well, children and parents. I think this might be one of the more common sense passages in Scripture. Children, obey your parents. Parents, do not be prodding, do not be provoking, do not be always poking at and nagging at your children lest they become discouraged. I think there's a lot of tension in the relationship between children and parents pretty much all the time. And you've probably heard this quote before from Mark Twain, but I think he captures the tension pretty well. He says, when I was 14 years old, my old man was so ignorant I could hardly stand to have him around. But when I turned 21, I was amazed at how much he learned in seven years. The relationship between children and parents is a relationship between experienced wisdom and those who are growing in it. And there are times when children do not understand the commands of their parents, but parents have a little bit of a wider worldview. And it really reflects our relationship with God in a lot of ways. That, that we don't understand all of the things that happen in our lives. And sometimes God puts a challenge in our lives and we ask, well, why would you do that? But at the same time, our God is such a good and loving Father that we trust him. Even when the challenge comes, we trust that he has some good in store for us. This is the way that in a Christian home, in a Christian relationship, the relationship between children and parents is supposed to be. That, that children obey parents, uh, not just because I said so, but sometimes, sometimes the parent will explain why. Sometimes the child just can't understand, but there's a relationship of trust. But the parent has been around for a little longer, sees a little bit wider of a perspective, sees a little bit more about cause and effect of the decisions we make. And so children willingly and gladly obey parents because of the trusting relationship that they have. That's what it looks like in children and parents to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
Finally, I want to spend a little bit of time on slaves and masters. This is actually where Paul spends the majority of this section. And it's not because Paul is giving a tip of the hat to slavery. Let's be clear, Christianity was a big part in abolishing slavery. But in in the ancient world, we see a very different world than the Jim Crow South that maybe we're familiar with, where slavery wasn't always oppression. And when it was oppression, Christians would pool together to buy slaves and give them their freedom. But in a lot of cases in the ancient world, slavery was actually a benefit to the worker. It it was kind of like the difference sometimes between being an hourly employee without benefits and a salaried employee with benefits. Uh, To be a slave means you, you have a house to sleep in, you have food to eat, whereas if you weren't, if you were a free man, you could be a day laborer who was always at, at the beck and call of the employer. Maybe he would have enough work to feed his family that week, or maybe the employer would say, you're on your own this week. Now, Paul was in this world. And even though Paul doesn't have any connection to Colossae directly, we don't know of him going there, Paul does have a small connection to the community. And his connection is actually through a runaway slave. Onesimus was a slave of a Christian, a wealthy Christian landowner named Philemon. Onesimus ran away from Philemon for some injustice or inequality that we don't really know about. And he goes and he finds Paul. And Paul sends Onesimus back with this letter. You see, Onesimus, whose name actually means useful, was kind of known as a useless slave, a useless employee. Uh, He was the kind of guy that... When the owner of the vineyard was walking by, he was the hardest worker you could find in that vineyard. He was plucking grapes left and right. But when Philemon was out of sight, well, he was pretty much on lunch break the rest of the day. Onesimus was not the greatest worker, and Philemon wasn't the greatest boss. But when, they, when he comes to Paul, Paul helps Onesimus realize what it means to be a Christian. It means to live your role in this world where Christ has actually leveled humanity. Not to serve in eye service for a Lord that's over you and better than you and more powerful than you, but to serve in equal. You see, because Christ was the Lord. He was the Lord of all. The Lord of all creation, the means by which God made this world into being. Yet he decided to take on the form of a slave, of a bondservant. He took on the form of a slave by taking on human flesh. And he served and worked with his whole life, wholeheartedly, out of his entire soul. And he served with his whole life on the cross, giving up his life so that you could have an inheritance Because we know that inheritance is only passed on when somebody dies. Christ goes to death so that he could pass his inheritance on to you. Christ, the Lord of all, becomes slave of all and loves you with his whole life to give you that inheritance. And in the process, 
Every human being who is unworthy of this gift become beggars before our gracious Lord. Owners and slaves. Employees and employers. And Paul calls them to play their role. Play their role knowing that they are equals in God's sight. And so he sends Onesimus back with this letter. And I can't even imagine the beauty of that reconciliation as, as Onesimus comes back, not anymore as just a slave, but as Paul writes in his letter to Philemon, as an equal, as a brother, you are to treat Onesimus. And as he comes back into the presence of this master who has treated him unjustly and unequally and asks for forgiveness for running away. And there's a reconciliation. As Philemon asks for forgiveness for the inequality and the injustice and, and their employers look no longer for their own gain, no longer for how they can get the most out of their employees, but they look for their employees' best interest. And there in that moment, the employee is not trying to serve himself, is not trying to look good in the eyes of the master, but he is serving wholeheartedly with his whole life because he knows that his master Jesus would do the same for him. That's what it looks like in word and deed to do everything in the name of Jesus. It looks like risking radical relationships. Because we know that our hope is not in just the relationship itself, but we aim to form our relationships after what Christ has done for us because we know he has given us an inheritance. We are inheritors because we have a place in the family of God because of what Christ has done for us. And this, this is what life in the family of God looks like. It looks like risking these radical relationships because we know that Christ loves us with his entire life to give you an inheritance. Amen.